Good morning. Welcome to Mount Pleasant today. My name is Andrew Philbeck. I'm in charge of home groups here, and I get to be with you again this weekend as we continue our study of the book of Matthew. Uh, My dad made it back along with everyone else from the Holy Land trip, so they had a great experience. I'm sure you'll hear more about that from him soon. Thank you to everyone who lifted up their trip in your prayers. I'm dealing with a little bit of a throat issue this morning, so be glad that you're here today and not Saturday night. That was kind of rough, actually. Um, I had a professor in Bible college that, when talking to us about preaching once, he told us that we should never draw attention to anything that we, uh, any, like, mistakes or issues that we have on stage. He even said, like, you know, if you cough, don't feel like you need to say excuse me. I always felt like that was strange. I'm not going to obviously do what he told me to do today, because there's a chance that my voice is going to crack. And I feel like I need to defend myself a little bit and not, you know, that you think that I'm just now going through puberty or something when I'm 32 years old. Uh, But we'll get through it together. The other services have been fine, and I'm sure this one will be uh, good as well. Last week, as we continued looking at Matthew, we looked at chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. And we saw the calling of Matthew. We saw a confrontation that Jesus had with some Pharisees because of his decision to eat with tax collectors and sinners. And one of the things that I tried to highlight in that message was the reality that Matthew, uh, when he decided to follow Jesus, he gave up everything in order to do that. Uh, Matthew may have turned his back on more material wealth than any other apostle. He was a tax collector, and he was hated for that, but He probably made lots of money doing it as well. And so when he followed Jesus, when he stopped being a tax collector, he immediately left his source of income behind. He immediately left the comfort of his home behind. He uh, maybe even left, uh, I don't know how much he would have had of this anyway, but he left the security of Roman support behind, along with his friends, whatever friends he had. We looked at the dinner party that Matthew threw uh, in order to uh, bring other tax collectors, other sinners, people just like him, in contact with Jesus. And this was obviously not a very respectable group of people. And that was a big deal back then. Who you ate with said a lot about you. Uh, It was something that people put a lot of thought into. And it's one of the reasons that there was such an issue on the part of the Pharisees. Uh, This could have been the very dinner where Jesus you know, earned his reputation for being a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, what he talks about later on in Matthew chapter 11. But I love this because what we see here, honestly, is Matthew using uh, the connection that he had with Jesus in order to facilitate a face-to-face encounter with people who needed a face-to-face encounter with Jesus. I think he did this because they needed it, but I also think he did this because he understood that once he left to follow Jesus, there really was no going back. I mean that literally and figuratively. His old life, his old friends, everything that he had been was gone. I want to remind you of that this morning by way of introduction because this idea of the old way of life being completely incompatible with the new way of life that Jesus wants for you is a central theme of our text today. This is the focus that I want you to take with you. In fact, before we do anything, I want to challenge you to write this down in your notes somewhere today. Write down this phrase, 
The new life Jesus has for you cannot fit into the old life you've always lived. The new life Jesus has for you cannot fit into the old life you've always lived. This is the thing that I want you to keep with you. Keep it in the forefront of your mind. We're going to circle back to it later on in our time together today. This is the key for this morning's message. Now, having said that, would you go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17, if you haven't done so already. We're going to talk about a few things based on our text today. There's some points in here, some some truths that I want to make sure and share with you, but at the same time, this is the central idea that we're focusing on. The new cannot fit into the old. Um, we don't know how much time has taken place, if any. Maybe there hasn't been any time. We don't know how much time has taken place between what we looked at last week and what we're looking at this week. You know, an accusation on the part of the Pharisees about who Jesus was eating with may have led to a genuine question on the part of John the Baptist's disciples when it came to fasting. Uh, but either way, one of the things that we see again in our text, and we'll, we'll see this more clearly as we work through it, is this truth that the new life does not mesh with the old life. So let's go ahead and look at our text this morning. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? I'm going to read Matthew 9, verses 14 through 17. You can follow along. It says, Then G- John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. You may be seated. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. I'm going to break our passage apart into three pieces this morning. They're not creative pieces, just to prepare you. But if you're taking notes, you can go ahead and write this down next to number one in your handout, the question. The question, that's what we see in verse 14. You know, as I mentioned earlier, last week, the Pharisees asked Jesus' disciples a question, but it was not a genuine question. In fact, it was an accusation. It was a condemnation because of his decision to eat with people that they did not approve of. Here, at least, in our text this morning, we have a genuine question about fasting from John's disciples. That's the, the people who followed John the Baptist. Now, to be completely upfront with you this morning, whenever I read about fasting in the Bible, it is convicting to me because I do not like to do it. Eating is one of the best parts of my day. Sometimes eating is the best part of my day. I'm sure that many of you have had days like that. There is a reason that we call it comfort food. Uh, I, I love that. My family will sit around the table at night and we try to get our kids to talk and to open up and to, and to get used to having a conversation at dinner as opposed to just sitting there uh, without speaking. And so we'll ask questions, you know, what was the best part of your day? What was the worst part of your day? What was something funny that happened today? Uh, what, did you learn anything new at school today? Did something happen today that made you sad? You know, all of that. And when it comes to my turn and someone will ask me what the best part of my day is, sometimes I'm just really honest and I say, you know what, I got to have pizza for lunch today and it was awesome. 
And my kids, they're so sweet and innocent, they get so sad because I don't say stuff about them being the best part of my day. But you know, the truth is they're the reason that I don't usually get to eat as fast as I want to uh, because I'm taking care of them. And when you don't let me eat, uh, that does not earn you any points in my book. So they'll figure that out as they get older, I think. Uh, nowadays, you know, in our culture, we see people, and I'm sure many of you have done this, we see people who fast from any number of different things. Uh, I feel like a lot of times it has to do with technology. People will fast from television or social media or video games and, and things like that. Uh, the, something to know, though, is that whenever you read about fasting in the Bible, it is always referring to food. I think that helps us understand the context and the importance of this passage. In the Bible, it's always a reference to food whenever someone is talking about fasting. Now, I don't think that there's anything wrong with fasting from other things. I think there can be great value in that. In fact, I want to share a quote with you that I read this week in preparation for this message from uh, Richard Foster's book, The Celebration of Discipline. He says, more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. I think that's a powerful statement. I think if you leave here today and, and you think, you know, well, I, I've never fasted before. Maybe I should fast again or what should I fast from? I think uh, we can uh, have the ability to take an honest look at our lives and think, you know, well, what is the thing that controls me the most? What do I think about the most? What do I kind of plan my life around and how can I fast from that? Getting back to our text, Another thing that we need to know about fasting during the time of Jesus was that there was actually only one prescribed day for fasting, one time when the Jewish people were expected to do it, and that was on the Day of Atonement. Now, of course, people could fast at other times and for other reasons, but when it came to the law, this is what we see. And the reason this is important for us to understand this morning is because by the time that Jesus is walking the earth, the religious leaders and the Pharisees, they have created the belief that in order to honor God, that in order to be right with God, to be a righteous person, uh, in fact, you had to fast twice a week. That's what they did, and they were right with God. So if you wanted to be right with God, that's what you needed to do. That was the general idea. And we know that obviously the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they followed this, but we see in our text that this idea of what it meant to be right with God was so prevalent that even the men who followed John the Baptist believed that it was the right way to live as well. Now, I know if you're like me, it's kind of weird to read about men who follow John the Baptist. I always read this part and I wonder, well, why don't they just follow Jesus? John pointed to Jesus as the Messiah, but this just speaks to the truth of, you know, where Jesus is in his ministry right now and how there's still so many questions and, and wonderings about him that they're still following John the Baptist. It's just what we see here. And I hope you understand, I hope this helps you understand a little bit about why this is an issue and why this is, in fact, a genuine question. Because while the Pharisees uh, might not have asked it in a genuine way, John's disciples do. They want to be right with God. I really believe that. And they believe that Jesus and his disciples want to be right with God. And so they wonder, why? Why aren't you doing this? Why, if you want to be truly right with God, if you want to truly honor God, then why don't you fast twice a week like all of the other religious people do? We know that Jesus and his disciples, they're not like all of the other religious people. They don't just go through the motions. And I think there's a challenge in there for us this morning. 
a challenge that we should embrace in our own lives, that we should strive to not simply go through the motions. We shouldn't just be like all of the other religious people. We shouldn't just mindlessly do things. We need to have a, a personal and dynamic relationship with Jesus. And, you know, that doesn't mean that we, we put ourselves on an island and that we don't listen to what other people have to say and that we don't think there's any value in what others do or anything like that. It just means that we make our faith our own. It's not something that we have simply handed down to us by our parents. It's not something that we just go through the motions with because we've always done it that way. I think that's what we see in this passage in reference to fasting. They'd created this belief that this is what you did. And it had become so pervasive that John's disciples, they couldn't believe that anyone would do it any other way. They were so focused on their traditions and their rituals that they were blind to who was standing right in front of them and what that meant about how they should live. Jesus' followers knew that he was here to do things differently. Write this down next to number two in your handout, the answer. The answer. We're going to spend more time looking at the words of Jesus than in their part of the passage, just like we did last week. And the first thing that we see is Jesus respond to this question by John's disciples. He says, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? He answers their question with a question. And if you've ever read through the Gospels, you know that this is something that Jesus does quite often, actually. And as is the case with Jesus' words, they convey a powerful message. In his response, he casts himself as the groom at a wedding feast, a wedding ceremony. His followers are the guests. And here's the deal. People do not mourn. People do not fast at weddings. I mean, I guess I don't know what it was like at your wedding, Maybe there was some mourning. Maybe there was some fasting there. Maybe from the one side of in-laws or another. But the reality is weddings are celebrations. Weddings are a party. And when the groom is there celebrating with the guests, you don't fast. You celebrate. You, you experience great joy, not sadness at this time. He continues by saying, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. And this is, you know, a clear reference to his crucifixion, to the time when the apostles will be without Jesus. It also, of course, reminds us, and, and I'm sure you know this, but I just want to state it clearly today, that there's nothing wrong with fasting. Uh, Jesus himself fasted for 40 days before being tempted in the wilderness. What he's simply saying here is that now is not the right time. Uh, in, in his commentary on Matthew, Warren Wearsby has this great quote I want to share with you. He says, he came to give spiritual joy. The Christian life is a feast, not a funeral. He came to give spiritual joy. The Christian life is a feast, not a funeral. These men were so, as I said, they were so wrapped up in this idea that they had to fast. And if you didn't fast, it was, a, it was an issue. And it meant that you weren't right with God. And Jesus is there saying, I have so much more for you right now. But you're so stuck in the old way of life, in the old life that you can't see what's standing right in front of you. And I wonder, I wonder how many of us could take that quote and ask ourselves this question, you know, is my Christian life a feast? How would you answer if you asked yourself that question? Is my Christian life a feast? 
Because it's a great picture. It's a great image of everything that God has given us. You know, we think about the, the blessing that it is to have his word and all the, the truth and the guidance and the wisdom that we see in there. We think about the reality of having his spirit living inside of us. We think about the, the community that is available to us within the church. Do you feast on these things? <coughs> Excuse me. Do you feast on these things? Does your life echo the words that Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 4 when he said, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God? You know, does his word sustain you? Does it give you peace in the midst of this world? Do you allow his spirit to guide you when you're dealing with difficult situations or when you're, you're struggling with temptation? Do you, do you spur one another on toward love and good deeds in the community of the church uh, with your acts of service and by taking advantage of your spiritual gifts? Is your Christian life a feast? And the Pharisees, they had, they had taken something good in fasting, something designed to bring people closer to God, and they had corrupted it because of their ritualistic nature, because of the empty way that they went about it. For them, it wasn't about drawing closer to God. It was about lifting themselves up in front of other people. (laughs) As long as my voice doesn't crack, I'll be okay. That's not humility. That's not what God called us to. That's pride. Pride can corrupt anything. The Pharisees, because of their pride, they had allowed it to corrupt this great um, experience of fasting. And just like we can ask ourselves, you know, is my Christian life a feast? I think we can also ask ourselves, is there anything that my pride is getting in the way of? Is there anything in my life that has been corrupted by my pride? Because we should never think, we should never think that can't happen to me. This won't happen to me. That's not something that I have to worry about because pride can corrupt anything. Remember what Jesus said when he spoke about fasting in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do for they disfigure their faces to show others their fasting. I think it's healthy for all of us to ask ourselves spiritual checkup questions from time to time. You know, why am I doing the things that I'm doing? What's the purpose behind it? What's the goal? Do these things, do these things serve me? Do they serve others? Do they serve God? Why, why am I living life the way that I'm living? You know, maybe, and that, that can be hard sometimes to be honest with ourselves. Maybe, and this can be hard too, but maybe what you need to do is you need to ask someone, ask someone you trust. How am I doing spiritually? You know, do you see anything in my life where, where you think I'm being too prideful, where I'm being, I'm being too arrogant, where I'm, I'm being self-righteous? We need to ask those questions and we need to have the humility to accept the honest answers, whatever they may be. Write this down next to number three in your handout. The illustrations. The illustrations. Jesus says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, before I talk about these two illustrations, 
I want to circle back to the uh, point I made at the very beginning of our time together. The new life Jesus has for you cannot fit into the old life you've always lived. The new life Jesus has for you cannot fit into the old life you've always lived. I say that because nothing drives home this point like these two illustrations. You know, John's disciples, for all of their genuine desire to be right with God, um, you know, they, they wondered why Jesus' followers didn't do the things that the religious people had, you know, always been doing. Jesus' words revealed that with him, a person cannot keep living life as they've always been living. Once you have a genuine connection with Jesus, you can't keep living life the same way. You know, as a kid, I remember reading through the Gospel of Matthew, and I remember getting to this chapter and reading Jesus' words and, and really being confused by them because I understood what fasting was, but I had no idea what, you know, unshrunk cloth and wineskins had to do with any of it. And so, you know, I, I've studied this passage, and especially uh, just this week, uh, reminding myself of it as I put together this message, and I love the simplicity of Jesus' statement here, because what I believe we see in both of these illustrations is the simple truth, the simple fact that the old and the new are incompatible. They're incompatible. Uh, let's just work through these illustrations real quick. Fabric in that day, just like in our day, uh, would shrink when it was washed. That's the way it was for most fabric back then. So let's say that you have a big hole in your tunic or your cloak, or your robe, or, you know, whatever the equivalent to jeans and yoga pants were back then. You want to patch them up. Well, the first thing that you have to do is wash the cloth that you want to use as a patch. Because if you didn't, if you just cut it out and sewed it on, then you know, maybe it would last a day or two, maybe it would last a while. I don't know how often people would wash their clothes back then, probably, probably not as often as I wish they would have. Um, but eventually it will shrink. And when it does, it's going to tear away from the hole that you patched. So not only do you have the hole again, but it is in fact worse than it was before. When it comes to the new wineskin, we see the same principle at play here. People would take... Um, animal skins, and they would use them not only to carry wine, but also to ferment wine. And you would always pour new wine into new wineskins because as the wine fermented, it would expand. And the new wineskins, they were elastic. They would expand as well. So let's say that you have a favorite wineskin and you want to use it again for whatever reason. And, and so instead of pouring old wine into it, you pour new wine into it and you fill it up. And you wait for the wine to ferment. You wait for it to become good to drink. Well, the wineskin has lost all of its flexibility. So as the new wine is expanding, the wineskin is fighting against it. And eventually, it bursts. And everything, the wine and the wineskin is ruined. I really believe this is, this is a crucial part of Jesus' message. His new wine is the new life that he has for all people. And the new that he has is not compatible with the old that people have always lived with. Uh, this, was, this was the point that he was driving home to, the, to John's disciples, to the Pharisees, to anyone who was listening that day who wanted to continue doing things the old way, blind to the truth of who was standing right in front of them. 
I mean, a person's spiritual life at that time, it was, it was just defined by religious acts. And under the guidance of the Pharisees and the religious leaders, these religious acts did not bring people closer to God. And this is why we read Jesus' words in, in Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Jesus fulfilled the law. We love that about him. You know, in his, in his preaching and in his teaching, we see him focus not just on the outside, not just on the acts, but our attitudes as well. In his life, we know that he came to give grace by his death on the cross, but we also know that he was gracious towards others. You see the way that he treated everyone that he came in touch with. Everything about Jesus points to the new life that he wants people to live. But you cannot live that new life until you get rid of your old one. Matthew could not follow Jesus until he turned his back on his old way of life. You and I, we can't follow Jesus until we turn our back on our old way of life. I mean, there is such a, such a simple and a strong truth here because, because the reality is, you know, you may not have years and years of religious tradition to overcome like the Pharisees did, like the other religious leaders did, but you still have an old life. You and I, we have an old life. We have a sinful nature that we need to be aware of and we need to deal with. A life that, if unchanged, cannot contain the new life that Jesus offers us. And I love this illustration that he uses here with the new wineskins because, you know, as the wineskins contain new wine, as the wine undergoes the process of becoming what it is meant to, to be, the wineskin must expand and grow and change in order to accommodate that transformation. And when you and I, when we accept Jesus as our Savior, we are constantly challenged and convicted to grow and expand and change in, under, in order to undergo what He wants for us, our own transformation, so that we can be who we were meant to be. Our failure to grow leads to our spiritual demise. And I think about the parable of the sower when, when Jesus is talking about all the seeds scattered onto different types of soil and, and he explains it and, the, and specifically the part when he talks about the seed that fell among the thorns. He said the, the, the seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures and they do not mature. These are things that keep the seed from expanding, uh, from growing, from maturing, from uh, taking root and becoming what it is meant to be. In our own lives, there are things that keep us from expanding in our faith, from growing in our understanding of, of God and his word, from maturing. You know, for religious people at Jesus' time, he could, he could clearly point to their, their religious and self-righteous nature and the traditions that they followed and that they, they held over other people and that they're the self-righteous way that they live their lives. And so we ask ourselves now, what can Jesus point to in our lives? What can Jesus point to in your life? What can Jesus point to in my life? Where he says, you know what? You have to get rid of the old in order to truly experience the new. I was talking to one of our pastors on staff 
a few months ago, I, I can't remember honestly what we had started talking about, but over the course of our conversation, um, it morphed into talking about, you know, the way that Christians live their lives and the importance that Christians, you know, that we place on, on things like going to church and being involved in church and giving and serving and, you know, just the stuff. This is what preachers talk about when no one is around, you know. We don't talk about sports or anything like that. We talk about all of you. But over the course of our conversation, we talked about, you know, the way that Christians live their lives. And he made this interesting statement that I, I'm not going to quote or anything because I can't remember exactly what he said. But he made this statement where he said, so many people, so many Christians, they love the idea of Jesus as their Savior. But they don't really embrace the idea of Jesus as their Lord. The Lord of their life. Every day, every moment, every thought, every word, every action the Lord of their life. You know, we have the self-awareness to know that, that we are sinners and that we cannot earn salvation on our own. We can't get to God on our own. And so to draw from the image that Jesus uses in this text, you know, we want that new wine that Jesus offers, that salvation, but we are old wineskins. We don't want to give up the way that we live, the control that we have of our lives. You know, some of the things that we do and that we've done for years and years, but when we live that way, when we, when we maintain and fight against the change going on within us, the change that Jesus wants us to experience, everything can be ruined. We don't let ourselves expand. We don't let ourselves develop. We don't let ourselves grow. We don't let ourselves mature. We get comfortable and we settle in. And before long, we look at years and years of our lives and everything we've done is just the same way that we've always done it. And there's no, there's no growth. Brian, you can go ahead and come and get ready to play. I hope, I hope you understand this morning that, that God wants so much for you, so much for your life. I know that at times it is not always uh, easy to experience that or to, to believe that necessarily, but it is true. He wants to save you from your sins, but he also wants you to become more and more like him. Salvation is not the end. It is just the beginning of the great life that Jesus wants for you to become closer and closer to who you were meant to be before sin and pain and death entered the world. I think there are a lot of people who love Jesus, but they just don't want to change. I mean, I would say that maybe you don't love Jesus. I mean, he came to the world to change the world. And he wanted to change the world by changing the hearts of the people in it. And we read these great words from Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. In order for the new to come, the old has to leave. The new life that Jesus has for you cannot fit into the old life that you've always lived. And you cannot get rid of your old life until you accept Jesus as both Savior and Lord of every single breath that you take. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the powerful truth that we see 